Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. This week, users who are registered at the DSRnetwork.com can preview our notes from the third sub-basement, our new member briefings written each Wednesday and Friday by host David Rothkoff. The preview is for this week only. Visit thedsrnetwork.com, click membership levels, and choose registration. If you choose to support our work by becoming a paid member, membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year through the end of November. Visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code BLACKFRIDAY, all one word, at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code BLACKFRIDAY, all one word, at checkout. Thank you. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. As usual, at this time of the week, coming from Washington, D.C., we have Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, practicing physician and former senior official in the Obama White House. How are you today, Kavita? I'm handing out boosters like candy. That's the way to go. If you, by any chance, saw Morning Joe this morning, Ed Luce made the very powerful case that the only thing the president can do to control inflation is control COVID and that the people who are making inflation worse are anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers. I encourage people to go and watch that because it was very smart. Of course, we want to talk about a bunch of legal issues today, do a deep dive. So we thought, well, who's like one of the very smartest lawyers we know, former deputy assistant attorney general, former U.S. attorney, host of great podcasts, talking feds on the law. And so naturally, we turn to Harry Littman. Hi, Harry. How are you doing? Not so well. And thanks for calling me smart, but I'm feeling kind of dumb because, Kavita, I'm ready for my booster and I've lost my card. Can you believe it? I must not. I'm sure I'm not the only one in America, but there can't be that many of us dumbbells. Luckily, if you've got your shots in California, you're in the registry. So, yeah, I I think there are ways. And I actually took a picture of it first. There you go. How do you how do you lose? But other than that, on the legal front. On the non-medical front, I'm doing well. Thank you. For listeners, let me just remind you, if you need medical advice, go to Kavita, (laughs) not to Harry. If you need legal (laughs) advice, go to Harry, not to Kavita. There's a movie in here somewhere. Yeah, something something like that. So there are a lot of legal stories this week, and I'd like to cover a bunch of them, from Steve Bannon to Rittenhouse to other trials underway and so forth. Let me start with Steve Bannon. This is either a question or it's psychotherapy for me. So, you know, handle it however you will. But, you know, it was good when they referred Bannon's rejection of the congressional subpoena to DOJ. It was good when DOJ 
decided to enforce the subpoena. Then he goes to court and he walks. So he's not feeling any pain. And he comes outside of the courthouse and he goes, they're messing with the wrong guy. And all of a sudden, by enforcing this subpoena, he's getting a bigger platform and he's not feeling any of the squeeze of, you know, being sort of thrown into the slammer until he cooperates. And on top of that, he's charged with two misdemeanors, which although I think each one could have a jail term of up to a year, it seems like kind of small potatoes in that regard. Harry, is our system not working here or are my expectations too high? I don't think you're looking at the right place, David, is where I would say, because this is the, the first time in a while that our system worked. And splendidly, I would say, yes, he came out in his outlaw brio. And uh, of course, he, he sounded off in that way. But the thing about Bannon is he's roadkill now. He is out of the picture for January 6th. And the reason they did it for him and that they had to was all about the other witnesses and changing the calculation. They got a win that they desperately needed, without which they would have seemed like paper tigers with respect to all these other witnesses who, by the way, are positioned very differently from Bannon, a guy like Meadows or or anyone we can talk about, the conviction would really hurt, even if it's only a few months. And by the way, a couple months in the pokey, you know, it's not, it's not most people's idea of a vacation. But even without that, it's probably ruinous or at least a very big body blow for people who want to stay remain players in Washington. It's going to cost a bundle and others don't have it. Yes, Bannon has the money and he's got this kind of villainish. He likens himself, of all people, to Lenin. And it was no surprise that he would be sort of snarling and vengeful. But the big headline here, that's the fourth paragraph. The big headline is DOJ came through after, what, years in which the judicial system just wasn't working, wasn't keeping pace with the timelines of investigations as a result of which Trump and his team could 100% elude. They were not simply showing up and advancing privilege claims for individual questions, but just saying, you know, a total thumb on the nose and saying, we're not even going to be there. So it changes the dynamic and they were sweating it for a while. Mer- Merrick Garland, you know, was very methodical about it, and they got what they needed. He is now a sideshow, and he's a loud sideshow. He's a carnival barker sideshow, but he's that and nothing more. And by the way, the evidence that he could have proffered that he won't now because he's out of the the sort of main event of January 6th, we know it anyway because he's this huge talker in, in keeping with this outlaw image. We know from his podcast that he said hell's going to break loose tomorrow and the things he did. He doesn't fill in the picture in a way that they don't have the information. So summary here of a long-winded lawyerly answer, I know a doctor wouldn't do this, is it's all about the other witnesses. And in that respect, total win, all good, get up off the couch and skip home. It's fine. You know, I think if along with his jail sentence, he was told he would be obligated to shower every day. 
Exactly. Right. He, that, he might see that as really uh, too much to handle. Yeah. What an unlikely sort of pair, you know, to, to be to be Trump's Bengali. He's, he is. Mm. He's so unkempt. He's, it's unhygienic, Kavita. Isn't he unhygienic? It is. But I, I, I have all these flashbacks to Larry Summers running the NEC and falling asleep <laughs> next to the president with like literally food down his shirt. Every and, and day. Me, and me He's on the podcast in a week. Yeah. Me inquisitively kind of going to his chief of staff and saying, do you know he's asleep next to the president of the United States? Oh, yeah. I'm having flashbacks myself of Larry Summers going into meetings with his shirt tucked into his underpants, which were pulled above the level of his pants. Also, all, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll trump you guys, as it were. <laughs> he was, when I was a sophomore, my dorm counselor. No, so I'm having flashbacks. No, him, him, you know, I don't, I don't think he get, he dispensed dating advice or whatever, but he was he was that guy. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. That that actually does trump I, that you win, Harry. All right. Win. OK, yeah, that is. A, All right. That's so a what college, else you got? That's a college movie. I don't want to see. question. Well, so I want to build just not on Larry Summers and and his unkempt challenge. We have Larry Summers to thank for Elena Kagan's being on the court. Oh, oh, trust me. This was not a, this was just a comment on unkempt senior. A lot of of great unkempt men in history. You had an LA Times article kind of talking about like the ban and, you know, just exactly what we just stated. But then you kind of started with Mark Meadows and how you think that that's going to have to come to kind of an OK Corral draw because there is so much more at stake, both for Meadows and for the committee. Can you walk through just similar to that? Because it does feel like we've set up and said, OK, Steve Bannon, here's this garrulous figure. But Mark Meadows is a different story. And he has kept a very low profile. I don't think he's done his counsel have done kind of interviews or posts. I don't think he said anything publicly. Correct us if we're if I'm wrong. He's no fool the way the way arguably Bannon is. Look, it's kind of a shame. You know, the the good thing about Bannon, there really is from a good government point of view, there's no reason all of this information shouldn't be, you know, flowing freely. But take a guy like Meadows. So the first thing I said about Bannon is now that he's referred for criminal prosecution, he's out. He's out mm-hmm. of the, the system. We won't hear that again. He's going to go for a couple years. Meadows is first, by all accounts, very deeply involved. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of press stuff that has him doing really nefarious deeds in the days leading up to January 6th. And more than that, he is Trump's shadow during these days. Nobody knows better. So if you were to get the same outcome with him, at the cost of losing his testimony, that's a big blow. That's for starters. Second, remember, we were all biting our nails a little about the Department of Justice and which way it would go. It seems as if the right answer here should be and shortly will be established to be Trump has no standing at all because Biden has said no executive privilege. But there's a lot that goes into a decision whether to bring a criminal charge against an executive branch official, which is passingly rare. And if they send it out to justice, think about Meadows, whose communications with Trump would be classically privileged were it not for Biden's not asserting it. And we're talking about a criminal case. 
maybe the DOJ and Garland say he may have the wrong legal answer, but is that a crime? And I think the, the committee can't be so certain how it would come out. And for all the win that I've suggested Bannon's being prosecuted was, it takes it back 80% or more if they then do the same move on Meadows and lose it. Finally, Meadows, as you say, he's quiet. He's trying to, he wants to be a professional in town. If he gets a conviction, he is pretty much persona non grata. Plus, he doesn't have the money to spend a million dollars on his defense. So he really doesn't want to, to play. So they, what I'm suggesting is they are in a real game of chicken where, mm-hmm. you know, either a crash, both sides would lose a lot. One more little thing to mention, the way that things have been proceeding so quickly on the Trump claim in the D.C. Circuit and the D.C. District Court, what really ought to happen here under the law and both Schiff and Lou and others are trying to fix it. The galling point of the last few years is they couldn't bring civil contempt. Why? Just because it took too long. It got tied up in the courts. That's a ridiculous outcome. There should be special ways to expedite these things. If the courts were actually ready to move quickly on a civil contempt, that would be awesome because what happens there is the meadows of the world go to jail. Remember Susan McDougall? And don't come out until they start talking. That would be best. But again, from the point of view of the committee, might be Chutkin or it might be like Judge Nichols, whom whom uh, Bannon has just drawn, a conservative person who doesn't care that much about tying it up for a long time. And they're in that same morass. So it just seems to me all paths lie are fraught with uncertainty for the committee and his testimony is valuable. And for Meadows, he doesn't want to go to jail. And that points to even though everyone's talking tough now, it points to some kind of not fully satisfying compromise, for example, answering written questions. His big thing is he's got criminal exposure. Mm-hmm. So if he, he he doesn't want to take the fifth, so he doesn't want to testify under penalty of perjury, but that has to be a minimum that the committee insists on. And they'll ask him questions that, you know, I think, he'll he can't answer truthfully without Harry just he can delay my understanding they'll come to some sort of resolution but that could be months in the making or no is there look they've got the um initiative if they tell him I mean look if they say as they did with Bannon they're gonna they're gonna talk tough and a new a new thing is coming Tuesday so they do that if he now he could call their bluff and now you're right we're taking months to negotiate as apparently they've been doing his right. lawyer had an op-ed in the in the Washington yep. Post that said that. So if they if it's that kind of thing, it could take months. But if they wanted to refer for criminal contempt, look how fast they did the censure on Gosar yesterday or before yeah. on Bannon. They could do it in two days. I'm just suggesting that, you know, and I, I feel kind of bad about it because I want them to get all the information out. But I'm 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 just suggesting they're playing with not that strong a hand, and they probably won't do that. So there'll they'll be more of this stance. Maybe I'm wrong. Hope so, actually. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, you raised the issue of judges. And I, I think, yeah. I don't know if it was Nichols, but one of these conservative judges, I just saw today when he was a DOJ, made the case that 
senior officials in the White House would be covered by executive privilege in cases like this, which could throw a, a monkey wrench into the whole yeah. thing. If it goes to the D.C. Circuit and they affirm Chutkin, which I think they will by, say, mm-hmm. mid-December, now he can't do that anymore. Now it's the law of the circuit. If he got it tomorrow, he could. His other district court colleague doesn't bind him. Sorry. Yeah, but also doesn't this, I mean, there's a, they're both, everybody on the Trump side is trying to play out the clock. The clock has two sort of moments to sound, right? One is November 2022. So if the Republicans take over the House, in November of 2022 or January, this is over. There's going to be no more special investigation into January 6th. I mean, they're going to be building statues to Steve Bannon and putting him in Statuary Hall. And then, of course, you know, if a Republican wins in 2024, no matter what bad happens to these guys, if they follow in the Trump playbook, they're going to be pardoned. It seems to me, you know, this is not indefinite. They can play this out to next year. Well, that's the question. I think, first of all, you want to read something really scary. Tom Edsel in the New York Times today or yesterday has this analysis that makes it seem like the Dems are, you know, start 10 points behind just for 2022. My understanding, David, on this is they assume um, that they have to complete it by the less than a year from now that that's their practical timeline. So can they play it out that long? That's the sort of push and pull of whether they go tough and hope that the law is there for them, that the judicial system or the Department of Justice has their back or or not. And at some point, they're going to have to take some chances. Another point about the Bannons of the world, it, or, I'm sorry, there's one Bannon in the world, and that's Bannon. The, it's the meadows of the world. Another point is it's not just those 20, the people who are defying subpoenas. It's the 150 who are cooperating in some fashion. I don't know what kind of breaks they're being given. They don't have to stand up in front of the TV cameras and raise their right hands. But that's a big part of this, too. For example, a lot of the former DOJ officials who who saw Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman do their dastardly doings are cooperating with the committee. And we don't know who all those people are. But so the muscle that they try to apply to the Bannons and Meadows was meant to sort of pay dividends, not just to scare other recalcitrant witnesses, but to incite reasonable people in the middle to talk to them in some relatively gentle way. Yeah, I have to say, I worry that all of this is going to end up with you know, a sense of the House resolution in which point one is finger wagging and point two is hand wringing. And that, you know, they'll say these guys did terrible things. And then we'll move on to the next thing. Kavita, I don't know if you noticed, but like in one of his earlier answers, Harry referred to Garland as being methodical, which I thought was very lawyerly and very generous. I don't know if you I don't know if you picked up on that, but I mean, he was not saying that Garland was being inert or or a weenie. Right. I am totally on Team Garland. I worked with Guy. I was going to say you worked with him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Garland was good in an attorney general, you know. But yeah, there's there's only so much they can count on him to do in a perfect world. They wouldn't need him because civil contempt would work well and they'd be able to force the testimony. But 
look, we were all we were all biting our nails, right? And uh, he came through, and he came through for exactly the right reason. He really saw that for all the legal, and I'd written a piece about this that Meadows' uh, lawyer has noticed, but others haven't. There's internal. Oh, well, remember the old Office of Legal Counsel and you can't mm-hmm. indict a sitting president? They've also said basically you can't pursue criminal contempt against executive branch officials. But Garland properly saw after weighing it all, everything's at stake here. Mm-hmm. The, the rule of law is at stake. And back to your point, David, an outrage that, that, it, could, that it ends up in half measures at all. But their number one thing is to actually tell the country, like, what the hell? happened here and um it should be full it should be easy as it was say 9-11 kennedy's assassination but if they if they file a report that gives it all up and that's what they do that's a that's an achievement that we have yet to actually have after all the outrages of the last few years so that's not nothing no it's not but footnote the warren commission and the 9-11 report were both not widely celebrated as great investigations either. Harry, I think you may have tweeted, or I'm hoping you tweeted about the Aubrey case. I did. Just along the line of questioning. So kind of taking the two cases separately, Aubrey and Rittenhouse, can you make a comment based on kind of this interpretation of Georgia law that, that pulling a gun was, you know, and actually like not shooting was kind of their, you know, their way of like withdrawing the fight. I find that to be such a fitting analogy for Georgia's actions on voting rights. I mean, so many things that are highly correlated, Harry, do you have, as someone who has helped shape law, studied law, I mean, this just seems like one of those things that even a year from now, if I'm trying to explain this to my five-year-old, they'll say that, how, like, who thinks that that's legitimate? So yeah. can you talk about kind of where you see some of the, do you see some of these parallels with some of these other issues that are coming up under both legal question, we can add abortion to that, reproductive rights. Talk about how you take the Aubrey case and think of it in this context of what's happening around it as well. And and just kind of a word of caution, your podcast is really enjoyable because it, for me, who knows nothing about law other than trying to avoid lawyers as a doctor, if, I find that it helps to just kind of break down, like, how did things get to where they are? And maybe comment about that as well. So, you know, it is, I mean, I haven't thought about it. It is a very interesting parallel. I mean, think about it for a moment from our, from the victim's point of view, running away from a guy and right. he, you know, at, at one point turns to him and that is, you know, he's unarmed. This guy's got it. And, and that's actually the moment where we now the law potentially in Georgia will say now is where right. you've employed deadly for. I mean, the, this sort of blaming of the victim mm-hmm. does have a little there is a little bit of the flavor of what's going on in voting rights where people trying to exercise the franchise are, are somehow mm-hmm. being, you know, uh, seen as fraudsters. I'm not sure that would hold up if I think about it for more than 45 minutes. But l- let me just say this legal, the legal issue here and Rittenhouse is pretty similar. It's, and it comes from when exactly are you analyzing things you have in both cases, people who clear the, the people who fired the trigger got mixed themselves into it in a way that, in a perfect world, well, in a perfect world, they wouldn't have the guns in the first place, but also 
you know, they are obviously aggressing. I, I, I'm not, I, that's different from murdering, but they're inserting themselves in it. And what the law says in both Wisconsin and Georgia is that actually matters and how it matters. I don't think it is going to play in Wisconsin, but how it matters is if you do that and you're, you, you're chasing him down. And by the way, they can only chase him down if they saw, if they have probable cause, I'm back in Aubrey now in Georgia, mm-hmm. to say that a felony has taken place, and that's just total, they, they have no idea. They could never make that case. Under the law, they have a duty to retreat. And that makes sense too, right? If someone's, okay, even if you're in a state where you can use deadly force to protect yourself, but it's, if you have a, a way to retreat before doing that, you ought to be. So at, at a certain point, you know, they're chasing him pedal to the metal keeping him from running and then there's this nanosecond where all of a sudden you know possibly possibly as the guy testified yesterday he fears for his life but how did he get into that nanosecond and what he, and what he actually said to try to qualify under Georgia law is oh i i withdrew i tried to bring peace to the situation how's that by drawing my gun on, you know, so now back to the view of the victim running scared, three guys are chasing him. And all of a sudden a gun is pulled on him. And that is supposed to be what a jury would say pacifies and calms the situation. Both these cases have become cause celebrities, which is almost always bad for justice. There's just a difference between what happens in the room and the, on all the sort of, partisan cross currents that take place when it gets onto the MSNBCs of the world. But that's what basically seems totally rotten to me about Aubrey is that maybe you could make a claim that in that very nanosecond before he shoots, he's in some reasonable fear, but he should have been nowhere near that position under the law. And as you would teach your kid and in kindergarten, that's not what society should countenance. Great answer. This is where we take a a brief break. This is where the public gets off and we move on to the paying members of our uh, audience so they can hear a little bit more. And there's a lot to talk about on Rittenhouse. I'll say the real stuff now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, now tell the truth now for the next 15 minutes. But uh, we'll take a brief break and we'll resume instantly. Hello, Deep State Radio and Spy Talk listeners. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. You may have noticed that Spy Talk has moved. You won't be able to find new episodes in the Deep State Radio feed anymore. Make sure you don't miss any new episodes. Just search for Spy Talk in your usual podcast app and subscribe. Or hit the link in the description of this week's episode. 